0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from ACAST. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm your host Roberto Mazza and today's with great pleasure my guest is Oren Kessler. Oren has recently published a book, 1936, discussing the Great Revolt and what, according to him, are the roots of the modern Middle Eastern conflict. 1936-1939, a very problematic historical period that I will deal with him later through the interview. But first things first, Oren, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oren, first question. Can you tell us something about yourself, your background, and more importantly, about the origins of the book?
2: Sure. I, I was born and raised uh, mostly in upstate New York. Uh, my parents are both from Tel Aviv, and um, I spent part of my childhood in Tel Aviv, but mostly, mostly in the US. Uh, I went to university in Canada, in Toronto, um, did my master's here here uh, in Israel, and then um, began a journalism career. Uh, I worked at Haaretz for several years. Haaretz English, uh, both on the on the on the print and on the online. I was uh, Arab affairs correspondent at Jerusalem Post, uh, and then I sort of shifted into uh, think tankery, and I was think tanking in London, and then uh, in DC uh, for several years. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then for the past four or five years, I've been uh, working on this book. Um, the, the, the genesis of this book is that uh, I guess for years I, I, I had wanted, I had dreamt of, of writing a book. And for some reason, I, uh, I, I decided that what the world needs is another book on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, so, uh, so, um, but I quickly realized, or perhaps I already knew, that it was an extremely saturated uh, field, and every aspect of the conflict seemed to have already been written about from fifteen different angles. Uh, until I lit upon this particular topic of of the revolt and everything uh, surrounding it, and I realized at, at the time, and I still believe that this was a severely underexplored, under-investigated, and extremely formative and and seminal and important uh, episode in the conflict that uh, had tended to be passed over or dealt with far too quickly, certainly in English. Um, and, and I realized that there was no sort of general interest account of this uh, of this uh, of this revolt and 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 everything surrounding it uh, in English and that's kind of the the gap that I set about to fill. I just want to add a few things here because I'm too kind of involved in this kind of research
1: and I must admit that at the very beginning I was a bit skeptical about your claim, <laughs> but I uh, I did some research too. I mean, in the sense that you you quote from books and articles of uh, individuals that are colleagues and friends, and. Uh, There is a point here to be made. It is true that, in fact, other than perhaps uh, some uh, good material published on uh, specific uh, events or details, like there's some good work done on the Bedouins as part of the Great Arab Revolt, or uh, some individuals indeed, but effectively uh, some sort of a meta-narrative or a grand narrative uh, about uh, the revolt itself and trying to take into account uh, all of the various uh, components is actually missing. And in a sense, your book does that job. Uh, but it will be also interesting to see that coming out from, you know, different sides and uh, perhaps adding uh, with other material.
2: And yeah, that's, that's a very good point. And I certainly wouldn't want to erase the work that has been done uh, on this. There's, there's, there's very good academic work. There's, I, I, I still would suggest that there's not as much as there should be, but there, there are academic works, a handful of them, that have been dedicated to this revolt. Um, generally to a certain aspect of the revolt, as you suggest, whether it's the Bedouin, as you mentioned, or uh, there was a book recently by the British professor Matthew Hughes, a military history about the British counterinsurgency and very much a sort of traditional academic military history. Um, There have been two more or less general accounts in Hebrew. And then uh, in Arabic, uh, Professor Kabha, who I mentioned earlier, has done more than anyone to kind of fill the gap of of uh, Arabic historiography, so I wouldn't want to suggest that that I've i this is completely virgin territory that no one's ever uh, gotten to, but I, I I do think that I can, um, I can claim that I can assert that it, that it is the first sort of, as you put it, meta narrative or sort of general history uh, in English about this about this revolt.
1: Uh, absolutely, and I was thinking while reading the book, also other, you know. Uh, kind of works that have been written about, again, like a very specific parts. Uh, Lauren Bancom wrote about, for instance, the question of citizenship that emerged there. But on the other hand, I, I also realized that there are other aspects missing. For instance, you discuss uh, uh, briefly the question of also the intervention of other, uh, you know, foreign powers. And, uh, you know, from an Italian perspective, something that uh, I sort of... Uh, had in the making for quite some time to look also at the role of fascism and, uh, you know, Mussolini himself in, you know, supporting quite interestingly both sides in different ways because, uh, you know, there's never like a clear-cut choice made by uh, foreign actors who to support who. Uh, But I found it interesting that, you know, your narrative was actually bringing uh, all of these uh, together. Let me move to a... um, you know the next question. Now, before we delve into the details of the Arab Revolt and perhaps some of the stuff that we just uh, mentioned, I'm curious about the historical context. Uh, you know, most of the listener may be familiar with it, but I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, what's going on in Palestine uh, before the uh, outbreak of the Great Arab Revolt in
2: 1936. Sure. So, so as I as I mentioned earlier, the the sort of the, the modern Zionist movement really begins in the late 19th century uh, of course with with uh, Theodore Herzl and and, and and organizes the first Zionist conference and, and Congress in 1897 but even before then there's uh, Zionist immigration to the land and then of course you've got the Balfour Declaration in 1917 in which uh, in which Britain expresses its its uh, it's support for a "quote Jewish national home in Palestine. And of course, there, since that moment, there has been endless debate about what that means. What is a Jewish national home? What does it mean to be in Palestine rather than perhaps encompassing all of Palestine? What are the borders of Palestine? Uh, but that's the Balfour Declaration, that's 1917. And then um, a few years later, the, the, the League of Nations uh, enshrines that, that declaration of support for a Jewish national home in the mandate text, kind of the mandate constitution, if you like, and gives it to Britain, which of course had 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 issued that Balfour Declaration. So uh, so Britain's sort of post-World War I military occupation of, of Palestine becomes a League of Nations mandate. And Britain is sort of ruling this country on behalf of the League of Nations uh, and has agreed to facilitate uh, Zionist settlement, Jewish uh, settlement of of this land, while protecting the uh, religious and and, uh, and and civil rights of the Arab population. That's essentially the the agreement, as it were. And then throughout the 1920s and 30s, um, there are ups and downs, of course, for for the Zionist movement. But it's an era of tremendous uh, building and investment. And certainly in um, well, let's 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 stick in the 1920s for a moment, because there were three uh, outbursts of of significant violence in the 1920s, which uh, which we, we have to mention. That's 1920, 1921 and especially 1929. And uh, I can't I've lost track of how many people when I tell them the topic of my book who say, oh, you mean Hebron? And I say, no, that was 1929. Uh, there there are books on that already and 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 Hebron was uh, was um, a horrific outburst of violence in which in which some nearly 70 Jews were killed in, in one day in Hebron and then and then by the end of that week about a, about a uh, 130 and um, and a, a fairly similar number of Arabs killed by by British uh, forces as well. Uh, that, that was a horrific outburst of violence, but it wasn't an uprising. It wasn't a sustained intifada, as we say these days. That nothing like that had been seen until uh, until 1936. Can you give us a
1: short description um, of the main characters involved in this context? Because uh, one one interesting part of your narrative is that you're you're trying to uh, sort of discuss a number of individuals who played important roles in the revolt, some also marginal, but, you know, they, at some point they became relevant for, for the discussion. And so, uh, you know, we, we may keep uh, the, the great mufti for later, but if you can just give us a sense of who's who in 1936 at the beginning of the revolt, and, you know, also then 37, 38, and going up to the uh, end of this revolt in 1930,
2: uh, 1939. Yeah, and I I, I I should add to that very quick a uh, canned summary of of the um, of the early decades of the mandate. That, of course, Zionist immigration was growing by leaps and bounds in the 1930s. and this is really kind of the context uh, the context that sort of leads to the backdrop of the revolt. Is that in the first half of the 1930s, the Jewish population of this country nearly doubles. Uh, these are really huge numbers. Um, it grows from, I, I believe, about 175,000 to, to maybe 350,000, and it's, uh, it's nearly one-third of the population of the entire country. And in fact, in 1935, just before the revolt breaks out, you have immigration of 60,000 Jews in a single year. This is, of course, in the wake of Hitler rising to power in Germany and uh, anti-Semitic movements um, gaining strength around Europe, in, in Poland, in Hungary, in Romania. Um, so that's really the backdrop to all of this. And so in 1935, there is a man whose name may be familiar to some of your listeners, uh, is Adin El qassam And this was a, a, a preacher from originally from the Latakia area of Syria, kind of a local village preacher, and at a certain point, in the 20s, he comes down to well, he's wanted by the French and he, he, he comes down to Palestine, settles in Haifa, which is a booming town, in large part because the Brits have made it uh, an imperial hub, a transport and logistics hub. Uh, by the 30s, they're building a huge port there. They're, they're building Palestine's primary port in Haifa to re- essentially ta- to replace or to to overtake uh, Jaffa port, which is much more sort of uh, antiquated and ancient. Um, so in in Haifa, the, there develops this this sort of community of low skilled um, workers, Arab workers who are somehow affiliated with the port, or, or or who have who have streamed into Haifa from surrounding villages to take advantage of the opportunities there. And Qassam is preaching to them, and he's preaching uh, he's preaching jihad against imperialism, against the British, and he tells them things like, you know, when the when the when the British officer comes and uh, and, and presents his shoe for you to shine, you should take out a, a gun from your shoebox. box. Don't take out a brush. And, uh, and he's really um, spreading this, this message, essentially, of, 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 of resistance of jihad against, uh, against the British above all. Although there were also some uh, attacks in those early days by his followers uh, against Jews. Mainly, he was, he was focused on the British. And in 1935, he is killed in, in a forest in in northern Palestine by the British, and of course he's kind of the the proto martyr. He's he's really the first sort of famous uh, preacher warrior martyr in 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 Pal- in, the, in the Palestinian pantheon, if you like. And um, of course his his followers vow revenge. And a few months after that, I guess about five months after that, in um, April. 15th, on April 15th, of 1936, they fired the first shots uh, of the revolt, but we can we can get to that a bit later. Um, in terms of other sort of main characters, there's another, uh, and I should mention, since we, we mentioned Kassam's name, of course, Kassam has lent his name to the uh, armed wing of Hamas and to Kassam uh, rockets that, that Hamas fires on Israel. So it's his name is still very much uh, in the news. And then another sort of main Arab character in these, in these, um, in, these er, in the early part of the revolt, is a man named Fawzi al who may whose name may also sound familiar uh, to those among your listeners who have who have read about this conflict because he reappears in 1948. Uh, Kaoukji is a very colorful character, originally from Tripoli and Lebanon. He's a man who enjoys uh, whiskey. He's a man with a lively sense of humor. He's a man who serves, he's kind of a journeyman. He's kind of a military journeyman, and he serves in a number, probably four or five different militaries or militia before he ends up in Palestine and really uh, in the early months of the revolt really gives it a, a kind of a professionalism. He was an officer in the, in, in the Ottoman army as well. He gives it a professionalism uh, and a, court, a sort of a mystique and a prestige that it, that it uh, had lacked before he arrived when it was just sort of a, a grassroots um, much more disorganized uprisings. So those are those are the main um, sort of characters on on the the Palestinian on the Arab side in the in the beginning of the end of the world. And what about
1: on the other side? What about the Zionists? I mean, I, I was fascinated to you know understand better the fi- the rising figure of uh, David Ben Gurion, for instance. But he's not alone, obviously, in this uh, period of time.
2: Absolutely, he he is by this time he's the Undisputed leader of the Jews in Palestine of the yeshuv, as you say in Hebrew, the kind of pre-state Jewish uh, community. However, he's barely known outside of Palestine. This is something that we tend to forget. The at this time and really throughout the mandate, the 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 face and the muscle of Zionism in the world is Chaim Weizmann, and uh, who's the head of the World Zionist Organization. Um, this is this is a man who from from the Balfour Declaration until really. 1948 is, is the face uh, of Zionism. He's tremendously well-connected. Um, he's tremendously charismatic, according to almost every, anyone who, who meets him. Uh, he's extremely well-connected in British uh, elite circles. He had lived in the, U- in the UK for many years. And uh, you know Israelis tend to remember Weizmann as the first president, but that was really the, uh, an epilogue to his career. That was, he was already an old man by that point. He was half blind by that point, but uh, he there's there's really he's he's really uh, the central figure of of, um, you know, international Zionism, if you like, in this uh, in this period. And and, and he's a fascinating character. Um, And then and then on the British side, we've got some some real uh, characters as well. And this is part of the reason that this topic drew me in so much is that as I as I researched it more and more, I was encountering figures like Winston Churchill. I was encountering figures like uh, Ord Wingate, um, and uh, and uh, so yeah, really on on not just you know there are two, three sides to this triangle. There's the 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 Arab side, the Jewish side, and the British side. And on all three, I tried to uh, to focus in uh, on characters who yeah on on, on on some very complex and compelling characters, including as as I think you alluded to earlier. Uh, some characters who are not the most obvious necessarily to uh, through whom to tell this story, particularly on the, on, on the Arab side, I, I spent a lot of time following a man named Musa Alami and another named George Antonius, um, who neither of whom was necessarily a central political leader, but in the case of Antonius, he was into, he was an intellectual. They were both Cambridge men, Antonius and Alami. And, 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 uh, he kind of wrote this seminal book on, on on Arab nationalism during this period and kind of introduced it to the West. And, you know, if we if we have time, we can we can discuss that a bit a bit more. But um, and then Musa Alami was just uh, I just found him a very fascinating, very compelling, very sympathetic character in many ways. Uh, this is a man who worked in the British administration for many years, was very had had, had many British friends. He had many. He would meet often with leading Zionists. He would meet. He met a number of times with David Ben Gurion, and, and Ben Gurion uh, respected Alami tremendously to uh, to his dying day. Uh, at the same time, he was a he was a committed Arab nationalist, Palestinian nationalist, um, and uh, and 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 in his own way, and I don't want to give too much away here, but in his own pretty significant way, contributed to, to, to the Arab revolt. Uh, in ways that would have surprised a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of his British and Jewish friends and admirers. So there, there, there really are some fascinating uh, characters in this in this time and place that I wanted to to um, introduce the reader to uh, in in as complex and deep a way as, as possible, given the the constraints.
1: I, I want to engage in a discussion here about uh, the so-called Bloody Day in Jaffa. And uh, particularly what did it mean to the Palestinians, the Zionists, and what was ro- the role of the British?
2: Yeah, so the, 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 the bloody day in Jaffa occurred on April 19th, 1936. Um, and essentially, I mentioned earlier that it was it, 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 there, there, there are two different days on which you could you could uh, identify the, the very beginning of this revolt, April 15th or April 19th, 1936. On April 15th, uh, as I mentioned, Kassam's acolytes uh, murdered two two Jews. Uh, they tried to murder three, but one survived. Uh, on the On the roads um, near Nablus, there was a, a, a elderly Greek Jewish poultry seller and his driver who were gunned down uh, on on the roads near near Nablus after after picking up some chickens from the Arab farmers there. So that was April fifteenth, and then four days later, we have. What became known as the Bloody Day in Jaffa, and that was a day in which uh, 16, no fewer than sixteen Jews were were killed on the streets of Jaffa and and South Tel Aviv. Um, basically, a, a sort of um, just a sort of spontaneous outburst of of violence. There had been various rumors flying back and forth, as as tends to happen when these uh, when these um, when these outbursts occurred. Uh, but yeah, sixteen sixteen people um, sixteen people killed by the end of the day, mostly in a neighborhood which no longer exists called Manshia, uh, in and around the Hassan Bek Mosque. Now it's it's essentially a, a underneath a parking lot over there by the beach. Uh, but um, it, it's an extremely bloody day, and it was obviously quite shocking for the the Jewish community, as you can imagine. Uh, And for the for the Brits who immediately implemented a curfew and um, uh, and tried to rush over some troops Uh, for the for the for the Arab side, I think it was it was significant more than anything as the opening shot of the revolt. And in the subsequent days you had, in fact, the day after you had Arab notables in Nablus, which has always been sort of a center of Palestinian nationalism. Uh, declaring the formation of a national committee or a patriotic committee. And then just a few days later, um, these began sort of springing up across the country in the various towns and villages. And then uh, then really within days, Haj the Grand Mufti, declares uh, something called the Arab Higher Committee with him at the top of it, which is essentially um, sort of the the, the umbrella group of all these national committees, he kind of declares himself the, the 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 leader of this revolt, as it were. Essentially, you know, he he hadn't started the revolt by any means. In that in that sense, there's there's some parallels to the first intifada of the 1980s, where it kind of it's a it's a grassroots uprising that then the political leadership rushes to kind of uh, grab hold to grab uh, grab hold of and uh, and and and, and, uh, and claim. So essentially, Haj Amin declares this Arab National or Arab Higher Committee rather, and makes three major demands, namely the complete stoppage of Jewish immigration, a complete ban on land sales from Arabs to Jews, and the establishment of a legislature that would reflect the country's demographics as they were at that time, namely a strong Arab majority. Uh, so those were the demands and uh, very importantly, uh, a general strike was called, which ended up lasting six months, which even to this day, I believe, is one of the longest general strikes anywhere. Uh, in, and essentially, the essentially Arab residents of Palestine, uh, the vast majority of them, simply refused to work with the British, with the Jews in any way, shape or form uh, until these three demands were met.
1: I'm curious about something, and probably this ties uh, with the methodology of the book or the way you look at uh, these events. Um, obviously, from our point of view, we may almost say that it was inevitable that this revolt would move forward uh, in thirty-seven, in thirty-eight. Well, in other words, that's sort of a you know it was unstoppable. But given the context, do you think there was a chance to? kind of stop what was happening. So events to unfold in that direction, maybe other direction would have been possible.
2: So I think to, to a certain extent, um, to a certain extent, it's always been in a way a zero sum game. And what I mean by that is that from the beginning, the Zionist movement was aiming for a majority. And from the beginning, uh, the, the, the Arab nationalist movement in Palestine was very conscious of that fact and was very much determined to keep as much of a majority as it could. So either side, there, there, there's really there's no way to split that that baby. And, and, and several people tried. Uh, Herbert Samuel, the first commissioner of Palestine, who was a, a Jew and a, and a Zionist uh, in his way tried to and or people like uh, Judah Magnus, the head of the Hebrew University, tried to sort of convince their fellow Jews that perhaps if they would give up their ambition of reaching a majority and they would agree to remain at most 35 or 40 percent, then perhaps there could be some kind of modus vivendi. But the other than some fairly fringe sort of peacenik movements. Among the Jews, the 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 main mainstream Zionism was 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 always always had its eye on a Jewish majority. There were questions about how long that might take, and in what form that may take—whether a Jewish state or perhaps just a long-term British mandate in which the Jews would 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 continue to grow in numbers. But that was always uh, that was always the goal, uh, among other things, was was a Jewish majority. And I and I I just don't see how now or back then, you can uh, you can split that difference. Neither side would have been happy with uh, 50-50. I think we can, we can uh, conclude.
1: And that brings me to the next step. Uh, when you discuss uh, this so-called two-state solution, so in other words, the partition of Palestine. Now, while meeting the Peel Commission, which came up with a plan to partition Palestine, and partition was not... Uh, Uh, a new idea. In fact, the British were already working on the partition, of course, as they did uh, already in Ireland before, uh, obviously then to happen in in India. So the whole idea is not a new concept. And uh, I had the feeling that uh, Chaim Weizmann looked like he was playing a sort of game, on one hand telling the British, well, the Zionists don't want a state, but on the other hand, really hoping for the partition of Palestine so that a state would eventually emerge. And on the other side, Al-Amin Husseini was quite vocal against the Zionists, but actually looked like more uh, in tra- less intransigent towards the British. In a sense, he was kind of playing a game uh, too.
2: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's what you said is is absolutely correct. Uh, Weizmann and Ben Gurion, I would add, both pretended that they. That uh, you know that they were kind of lukewarm on this idea of partition, and well, maybe, but it's you know, um, it's not it's it's not remotely what we actually want. But maybe since we, you know we're, we're so reasonable that maybe we would maybe we'd consider it. Let us, let us think it over. Let us let us have a think. Uh, but it, you know, in private, they were both ecstatic. I mean, you can you can um, you can look through Ben Gurion's memoirs. You can you can look through the recollections of people who spoke with Weizmann at the time, and, and both of them were euphoric at this idea of a Jewish state. And even though, as you mentioned, the, the concept of partition per se certainly preceded uh, this, this particular commission, there, the, the other places had been partitioned, but the, the, the notion of partitioning Palestine, you know, Western Palestine, namely between the, the Jordan River and, uh, and the Mediterranean, that hadn't been floated in any kind of official capacity uh, before this point. Um, there had been ver- there had been sort of some, some tentative ideas about it, or there had been ideas of ver- of cantons of splitting up the Palestine mandate into various cantons. But the idea of what the commissioners call a clean cut is uh, is new to the- this idea of a two-state solution and dividing this very small land without any clear geographic divisions in it uh, dividing that into two states uh, really has its origin in uh, in in this particular Commission the Peel uh, Commission now in terms of, of Haj Amin essentially Haj Amin al Husseini um, demands or, or instructs the uh, the the the, the, the the Arabs of Palestine not to cooperate with this commission in any way, shape, or form. He instructs, uh, commands the people to um, and his underlings to boycott the commission in, uh, completely. Until the very end of the commission, until they're about to pack up and leave, and he thinks better of it. He comes under quite a bit of pressure from, uh, from the Emir Abdullah in Transjordan and, from, and from, from powerful and influential Arabs both within and outside of Palestine, to reconsider, and so he says, "Okay, you know what? Uh, we will testify," and um, and he himself is the first Arab in Palestine to testify. Now, I'm not sure I would, I'm not sure I would necessarily agree that he comes off as less intransigent um, when when talking to the British. I think he, he simply realized that it was in his interest. He belatedly realized that it was in his interest that the Arab case, that his own case and the Arab case be heard by this commission. Because the, the commission was meeting dozens of Jews who were extremely well, the Zionist movement was extremely well organized. and had a very well oiled um, public relations apparatus, we, we, we could say. They would even travel around the country with, with some of the commissioners and, and show them the, the kibbutzim and show them all of these, uh, these great achievements that, that Zionism uh, had, had, had uh, under its belt. Uh, and the, the, the Jewish and the Zionist case was, was, was being presented to the commissioners day in, day out. And uh, again, he, related, he, he realized belatedly, as he tended to do, that it was simply not in the Arab interest. To not be heard, but when he actually sat down and testified, his his testimony was quite um, was quite uncompromising. He didn't really um, he didn't really move or budge from any of the positions he had held in in, in previous years. He essentially said, "These are my, my my demands. These are my three demands, and 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 that's it." Um, and 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 his control over the Arab population was such that nobody dared. Have any contact with the commission until he gave the green light, and then he testified, and several people, uh, several other leading Arabs testified afterwards.
1: Let me ask you something about uh, uh, the Peel Commission. In a nutshell, what did the Peel Commission report look like, and uh, how did Arab and Jews react?
2: So it's a it's a four hundred page document. But it's actually a, a very good read. It's it's very well written. It's uh, you know I read several of the the, the British loved sending commissions and uh, and they sent several throughout the mandate and I read several of them and this one is by far the best read. Um, there's there's a lot of history. There's a lot of context. It's uh, it moves along. It's got it's got a good pace. Uh, there's a lot of detail. Um, but of course it's it's mainly remembered for the last I think. 10 pages, maybe 15, in which almost as a very quick epilogue uh, or afterward, they say, Oh, by the way, uh, here's an idea. You could, uh, <laughs> you could, you could, uh, you could partition the land. Uh, this is, this is, th- this is essentially the best uh, we could come up with. We're not really going to get into too many details, but here's a map that we've drawn up. Here are a few ideas of how it could happen. Uh, good luck. That's um, obviously it's <laughs> obviously a very liberal paraphrase, but uh, it's not that far off. Uh, and um, so they basically, in the conclusion, they they uh, they they conclude, they assert that an irrepressible conflict has has developed between two national movements in a in a very small country. That there's no common denominator between them, whether in language, in religion, in mentality, in aspirations and really that the only solution is is the clean cut um and uh and that they can see no other way out and and then again and then they sketch out that that potential solution very briefly and essentially recommend that if if the government adopts this uh proposal that they should send out uh, another committee to figure out how to do it uh the end that's that's a, that's uh that's um that's kind of the gist of the of, of the recommendations so really fascinating document primarily remembered for partition
1: i want to take you outside uh palestine your narrative intertwines uh events in palestine but also uh, events that are occurring in europe and it's kind of like mixing them together so can you tell us a little bit more about the unfolding history in europe and how did this
0: influence?
2: Absolutely, and I and I and I realized that I, I I forgot to to answer part of your question, which is how the how the Peel report was received, um, and really the the, the Weitzman and Ben Gurion continued to kind of to to play act a little bit in the sense, more than a little bit, in the sense that they they kind of pretended to be to to be lukewarm and unenthusiastic about it, um, but they were all they were all in, they were completely in, uh, in favor of it, and there was a very contentious. Zionist Congress that year in uh in Zurich Zurich I believe uh, in this is 1937 already in which there's a very heated debate about whether to accept this or not and some some leading Zionists not not the two that I just mentioned but some some others uh Menachem musishkin for example and and others Itzhak Tabenkin who were very much on the um who themselves uh, particularly Tabenkin was very much on the Zionist left uh, and yet they thought this was a betrayal, this is unacceptable, or this was unworkable, and they fiercely opposed it. But in the end, uh, the, the the Zionist Congress uh, approved it by not a huge margin, but they did approve it, and, um, and the Zionist movement, kind of the, the mainstream Zionist movement, gave their approval to this plan. I should mention that uh, there was, and we haven't discussed this yet, but there was a... An alternative Zionist movement, the the right wing revisionist uh, movement of Vladimir Jabotinsky, as represented by groups like um, Be- the youth the youth movement Betar and the militia the Irgun or the Etzel uh, in English the the national military organization the Irgun, which uh, completely rejected it and 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 they said uh, they said that this was this was a complete betrayal uh, the entire the entire Land of Israel belongs to the Jews, including, by the way, uh, parts east of the Jordan, which the which the British had given to to to, uh, to uh, the Emir Abdullah when they created Transjordan in 1921. And this is a, this is an awful betrayal, and no way. Uh, so that was on the Jewish side. Uh, on the Arab side, of course, Hajamin rejected it uh, out of hand, um, and uh, and he wasn't alone. It, it, there were there were very few. Prominent Arabs who were excited about the prospect of a Jewish state no matter how small uh, it would be uh, the one exception being uh, Amir Abdullah in, in Transjordan. This is uh, uh, a member of the Hashemite dynasty uh, Which for, for for a long time ruled Mecca, but but no longer they've been pushed out by the by the Saud dynasty and um, This is the, the the brother of Faisal the famous Faisal who who uh, along with Lawrence of Arabia launched the Arab revolt in World War One. But uh, the Emir Abdullah always felt that Transjordan was not big enough for his ambitions. He always had an eye on Jerusalem or perhaps Damascus or perhaps Baghdad. Uh, And so he very much liked the idea, which is floated in the partition, (coughs) excuse me, which is floated in the uh, in the Peel report, which is that the Arab state should be in some kind of union with Transjordan. So he viewed that as an opportunity to expand his rather poor, sparsely populated desert realm. But other than him, it was uh, almost complete rejection on, on, on the Arab side. Uh, now to, to, to answer your, your, your second question about the, the European context, um, it is true that the, the uh, the book the the structure of the book is uh one of the reviewers called it a uh, a mosaic history and I, I i take that as a compliment i i think i was somewhat inspired by by the the historian tom segev in his book one palestine complete which i i think is just a masterwork in terms of storytelling um in the sense that uh that uh he, he, he jumps around uh, a bit. He'll have maybe five or ten pages on a certain time or place and then take you somewhere else to a different time or place and then bring you back and and, uh, and, and somehow it works. So I, in, a, in a sense I, I tried to do that um, as well with this book because there was, there is was really no I don't think there's you can separate the European situation from the Palestine situation. as As I mentioned, the 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 Jews of Europe, could feel the walls closing in. That's not to say that most of them uh, knew that that genocide was on the horizon, but they could see what was happening in Germany. This was already um, after Germany had uh, had instituted all kinds of anti-Jewish measures and um, all kinds of essentially made the Jews of Germany non-citizens. Um, there had already been uh, you know boycotts of Jewish businesses and. And, uh, all kinds of, uh, terrible things in Germany and, and in other, um, in other European countries. So you really had, um, you know, this is a period in which you have the Munich crisis. This is the period of the Anschluss of Austria. Um, you know, this is when Hitler, uh, you know, occupies the Sudetenland. And all of this is intimately tied, both in terms of, uh, the Jews realizing that things are getting very, very bad in Europe and needing a place to go. And by the way, the U.S. was essentially closed since ni- since the 1924 Immigration Act. The U.S. wasn't a possibility. So Palestine was essentially almost the only option in the world. This is also the period of the Evian Conference of 1938, in which an attempt was made, led by President Roosevelt, uh, to find some kind of solution for the persecuted Jews of Europe. And historians have debated how sincere the attempt was, but at least, uh, this, this conference was called and with the exception of the Dominican Republic, uh, (laughs) which offered to take in a few thousand Jews, there was essentially no country, uh, that was willing to accept Jews in any kind of significant, uh, numbers. And so uh, that's, that's in terms of Jewish immigration, but also in terms of Britain's military uh, capabilities. I mean, the British were, were extremely worried that a Second World War was on the horizon, and therefore they don't have the resources and the men to send to Palestine to deal with the Arab revolt. So what did they do? They ended up arming and training in massive quantities the Jews. And this is something they had resisted doing for years, despite repeated Zionist uh, requests, shall we say, or even demands, uh, requests, let's say, to, uh, to, to let, to let uh, the Jews help the British secure the country and requests by the Jews for arms so that they could protect themselves. The British had been very cold to, all, to those requests in the past, but now they realized that it's a much more feasible proposition to massively arm and train Jews than to bring over British forces who are needed in Europe, at least until the Munich crisis was uh, resolved, however, temporarily. And so this is another extremely important byproduct of, of the revolt is that you have the premier military in the world at this point, the British the British army, uh, arming and trading Jews to the tune of 15,000, 20,000 of them, um, and this is really the beginning of the Haga, of the transformation of the Haganah, which was a technically illegal but essentially um, tolerated Jewish self defense organization or militia, uh, it's the beginning of the transformation of Haganah from a, basically a glorified night watchman's unit into the seed of the IDF, the Israeli army.
1: You, you already tackled a few things that I wanted to ask you, but perhaps you can add a little bit more about the significance. Of a, a specific event, which I found very important uh, in the book, and that that was the execution of Shlomo Ben, Yo, ben Yosef, who was a member of the Revisionist, uh, you know, shall we say, right-wing uh, movement Betar, and, and perhaps, and you already mentioned a few details. Can tell us something a little bit more about these uh, uh, paramilitary forces, uh, not just the uh, Haganah, but also the Irgun, for instance, and maybe a little bit about their differences.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Shlomo Ben-Yosef was a 25-year-old, uh, new, relatively new immigrant from Poland. He was a member of uh, a group called Betar, a youth movement that was affiliated with, and, or whose leader was Vladimir Jabotinsky, who is another fascinating character who is uh, fairly central to my, my book as well. He was uh, ex- extremely talented writer and thinker, he was in, in another life and another set of circumstances, he may have been a great Russian writer. Uh, but he, um, he was the, the, the ideologue, the, 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 the leading light of revisionist Zionism, which uh, in the mid 20s decided, Jabotinsky uh, decided in the mid 20s that, um, that the mainstream Zionist movement was not, was, was too lax, in its demands, was too eager to accommodate the British, and that what was needed was a Jewish state, uh, and on both sides of the Jordan, um, and that he he essentially he, he essentially claimed that the mainstream Zionists, led by Ben Gurion and Weizmann, were also in the back of their minds thinking about a Jewish state. They just didn't dare say so. Whereas he was coming out and saying quite plainly what the goal was. And uh, where the whereas the mainstream Zionist leadership th- through most of the revolt, uh, th- uh, through all of it, arguably, but uh, there were some cracks towards the end, uh, throughout the revolt clung clung to this idea of in Hebrew you say havlagah, which is self restraint, and the, the 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 mainstream Zionists believed that if they could show the British that they were responsible, that they were that they were sort of uh, absorbing these these blows and these the, the 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 death and the murder of their own people without retaliating, uh, that they could be that they were responsible political actors and that they could be trusted with weapons, and it worked like a like a charm. And that's without without that the British would not have have armed and trained them in such numbers. The Ergun, uh, which uh, in Hebrew it's Irgun Zvai Leumi, the national military organization. This is Jabotinsky's r- sort of rival dissident right-wing militia, which had a very different view, which was much closer to an eye for an eye. And it's in this period that we see the, the, the rise of, of, of Jewish terrorism. I don't think there's another way to put it. And I didn't realize this. I didn't really know about this at all until I started researching this book. But uh, this is the period in which... That uh, the Yigun again and again, literally dozens of times, uh, targets Arab civilians. They they're they're laying bombs in the in the vegetable market in Haifa, and they're bombing an Arab-owned cinema in Jerusalem. Uh, this is um, there's 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 no other way really to describe it than terrorism. This isn't this wasn't. Uh, going after you know Arab armed groups to try to to try to uh, you know for for, for in, in the interest of a targeted assassination or something these were these were attacks on civilians in order to show that Jewish blood had a cost and to show and in an attempt to deter um, to deter Arab attacks on Jews uh, so essentially Shlomo Ben Yosef is a young Beitar member. And there were many links between Be- the Beitar, the, the youth movement, and Yigal. The, the the militia, and uh, he and a couple of friends, um, it, essentially up in Rosh Pina in northern Palestine, northern Israel today, um, took aim. They 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 obtained some some handguns and took aim at an Arab bus, and the whole thing was planned terribly, and they missed the bus essentially completely, and nothing, the bus kept on kept on driving. Um, and yet, they uh, they they hid in the bushes somewhere, and they were found by British forces. And uh, Ben Yosef's two accomplices, uh, if you like, essentially um, essentially admitted what they had done. And um, one of them went on to plead insanity, and they 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 found ways to to get out of any real punishment. They were they were minors, and they basically the, the the case went to trial and. They found all kinds of, one of, the, one of them pretended to be younger than he was, and they found various ways to kind of get out of any, uh, certainly out of capital punishment or any kind of really severe punishment. Ben Yosef, by contrast, said he decided that he was going to go to the gallows. He was going to show that the Jews of, of today, of, of 1938, don't fear death. Uh, and that's what he did. He resisted all attempts uh, for clemency. Jabotinsky was working furiously to try to get some kind of clemency, uh, and he simply accepted his fate. He even sought out uh, his, that, that, that fate and went up to the gallows singing Hatikva, the Zionist anthem, as well as the, the, the Beitar anthem and long live Jabotinsky. So Ben Yosef really became the first Jew executed by the authorities in this country, probably in 2000 years. And, um, and so it was, it was quite a tragic thing for many, for many, many Jews here. Um, Ben Gurion thought it was ridiculous that, 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 uh, that Ben Yosef did something stupid and he shouldn't be turned into a martyr. Both his attack was stupid and going to the gallows. I think he probably thought was, was unnecessary. Um, but, um, but it just goes to show, I think the, the, the different mindsets and the different um, visions that the that the Haganah and the mainstream Zionists had about the way forward versus uh, their gun and the Jabotinskyite wing of, of the Zionist movement.
1: I want to move to talk about uh, a very controversial figure, one, one that we mentioned several times, and in certainly known uh, in many circles and certainly in Israel, mostly because of the infamous picture that was taken of uh, uh, Ajal Amin, Hussein, and uh, Adolf Hitler. But obviously, there's more to that picture. And so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about his role in the revolt. And perhaps you can uh, perhaps discuss Ajal Amin in relation to the other key figures that you already mentioned, David Ben-Gurion, but also on the British side or
2: the So there's so Haj Amina Husseini, uh, the Grand Mufti since since the early 20s uh, and in 19 essentially the, you, you can split up the revolt into two phases really. You have the first six-month phase of, of, of the revolt and the, and the general strike uh, at which point the, the, the British essentially uh, agree to call this royal commission uh, to look into the Palestine question, and then and then kind of the Arab leadership uh, agrees to uh, suspend the revolt as long as the the the, the commission is, is is examining the question. So you have a lull there after six months, and then you have the publication of the Peel report, and then uh, which of course was was rejected by Haj Amin. and then in late 1937 you have the assassination of Lewis Andrews, who was the acting commissioner of the galilee he was assassinated as he went to church on his birthday in nazareth and this was by far the highest level uh, british official to have been killed in 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 palestine really since since the british arrived and when that happens the british essentially decide that that all bets are off and if they had if they had kind of dealt with the revolt with a comparatively light hand. Of course, that's debatable, but with a comparatively light hand until that point. Now they were getting serious and the Mufti understood that the Mufti at this point flees to the Temple Mount, to the Haram al-Sharif, where he believes correctly the British won't dare offend Muslim sensibilities by storming the place. And then one night uh, under the cover of darkness, he flees, and there are conflicting reports about whether he flees dressed as a woman or as a Bedouin. But he flees uh, Jerusalem and uh, ends up outside of Beirut in Lebanon. And that, and 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 of course, uh, the question then is: What was he doing from 1937 to 1939 uh, when when the revolt is finally brought to a close? What was what was he doing there? Was he just biding his time, or was he? Uh, directing the revolt from afar, and I think, I think it was fairly the, the mufti was very very canny. He was very very clever. Um, he left almost no paper trail. There was no smoking gun that said the mufti is leading this revolt, uh, and I don't think anyone really thinks he was micromanaging every attack uh, or, or or even any attacks really. But I, I do think that it was fairly clear to the British to the Jews who had their own nascent uh, intelligent apparatus at this point, and, and indeed to the Arabs, that it was the Mufti who was guiding the revolt uh, along its main lines. There, there, are, there are, I mean, in the, in the archival record, uh, you know, I found, I found documents from the Palestine police that said things like he kept, quote, quote the entire rebel movement under his thumb, uh, there's an mi5 report that that said the, the mufti controls the movement along its main path. Uh, you know the, the, the two colonial secretaries of this period uh, Ormsby Gore and, and Malcolm McDonald both were, were convinced that that the mufti is is the one who's ultimately uh, behind funding and arming and 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 just um, motivating these uh, these these armed groups to continue uh, their attacks and even in 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 after he flees the country he se- there's a there's a group set up in Damascus called the central Committee for the national jihad and so you can see the kind of Islamic quite strong Islamic uh, overtones there already uh, and and this is led by a guy named Izzat uh, darwaza who's a, a nablus intellectual who's not technically affiliated with the mufti but it's kind of known to everyone that uh, this office in Damascus is essentially uh, serving as a way station for the mufti's orders to go to the armed bands, so this 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 group, I mean, the group was fairly open about its aims, which were which were to to, to support these armed groups. But it was fairly clear to everyone that it that it was the mufti who was calling the shots through this Damascus uh, office. Um, and then later on, this 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 office found something called the Central Committee, uh, it's called the uh, Central Bureau of the Arab Revolt, which essentially uh, nominates two militant leaders to be the kind of rotating heads of the of the revolt. And again, this is all these are all essentially the muftis' men who are uh, who are in charge of these uh, these organizations. So again, there's there's no smoking gun. Uh, I, I I would say because the mufti was too smart for that, but I don't think. Um, I think it would be hard to argue that um, that he was not just the symbolic, but also the practical uh, force behind uh, much of the revolt. And, and, th- and that includes, uh, it's important to say, not just attacks on the British or on the Jews, but that includes um, a large number of, of violent actions against Arabs who are considered insufficiently committed to the cause. So that's, you know. Actual traitors, That's perceived traders. That's just enemies of, of 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 the perceived enemies of the mufti, um, and there were quite a few uh, prominent and not so prominent Arabs who who ended up uh, assassinated for being considered enemies of the revolt slash the mufti, which in, in the mufti's eyes tended to be kind of one in one in the same. He tended to kind of identify himself with Palestine, and if you were an enemy of of a perceived enemy of him, but you are an enemy of, of, of the people and the nation.
1: I have a couple more questions, and but I think they're very important. And one is about uh, um, 1938 and 1939. I was wondering if you can summarize for us a little bit the events and also the price that was paid by the communities involved, both the Arabs, the Jews, and indeed the British.
2: Yeah, uh, these are really the, the, the critical years of, of the revolt. Um, the, the peak of the revolt is in is in mid-1938. Um, and it's after the Munich crisis is uh, averted temporarily by the Chamberlain government and um, that or resolved that uh, the British are able to send large numbers of, of forces to Palestine and they do. They send two divisions, which is you know twenty five thousand men. Um, This is, you know, this is the great, this is the largest uh, uprising against the British Empire in the interwar years. Um, And they, and so they flood the country with, with, with troops. Um, The police are also very active, but, uh, and, um, and this is also the period of of Ord Wingate and the special night squads. And we can, uh, perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll mention that a bit later as well. And. But uh, the British, uh, it's it's really no holds barred. Almost at this point, um, there are emergency regulations that are that are enacted or or uh, invoked, and this is where you see wide scale home demolitions. You see thousands of homes demolished—about two thousand probably. You see uh, collective punishment in which, and these were these were um, Matthew Hughes, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, Puts it well when he says lo- he writes that lawlessness was the law. Basically, according to the emergency regulations that were in place, the British were allowed to do these things that they were that they were doing. So, collective punishment. Uh, you know, if a, if a British convoy was attacked on the road next to a certain village, the British would assent, would go to that village and tell the muhtar the the, the headman of that village, "Okay, produce whoever did this, whoever did this, or else the entire village is guilty." Um, and, uh, you know, there were, there, there were, there were a number of, uh, atrocities as well during this period that I don't think there's another way to put it, uh, that, uh, that we can get into if, if, if you like, but there's, there were the, a, a lot of the, uh, administrative detention, for example, uh, you know, detention without, uh, without cause essentially without charges is something that, that basically, Uh, Hails from this period, and so a lot of the, a lot of the, um, uh, I mean, the cover of my book shows Old Jaffa uh, in a state of destruction. You know, a huge swath of Old Jaffa was basically destroyed. This was actually earlier, in 1936, in order to give the British access uh, to to um, sources of of terrorism in their in their view. So essentially, you have wide scale, large scale, heavy handed. military operations, counterinsurgency operations, demolitions, mass arrests. Uh, you have you know, you have about 100 Arabs hanged in this in this period. You have uh, you know, in total at least 5,000 perhaps 10,000 uh, Arabs killed. Uh, it's obviously a matter of, of debate or uncertainty about how many of those were, were killed by their by their fellow Arabs rather than by the British. Uh, but, but you have a a very serious um military operation that is is uh, that's pursuing collective punishment that's uh that's also uh hunting down particular rebel leaders quite successfully and uh you've got you know tens of thousands of 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 arabs fleeing the country at this point this is really the first wave of of refugees outside of the country you have something like, I I think it's something like 30,000 Palestinians in Beirut alone. So you have the kind of the flight of the elite, which is kind of a uh, a precursor or a preview of 1948. Um, So all of this really reaches ahead in 1938. And the revolt is fairly successfully uh, weakened. It's really dealt uh, a death blow. Um, and then in 1939, once the revolt is kind of uh, on the ropes almost, the British call the, the, something called the St. James Conference in London, in which they essentially decide, okay, it looks like uh, world war is coming and we need to fundamentally appease, and this is the word that they use, this is of course the era of appeasement, We need to fundally appease Arab opinion because uh, we need Arab and Muslim opinion on our side in the coming war. Um, So I don't know if you want me to get into that conference uh, right now, but essentially uh, there's a political decision that's made, which is that the British need to go as far as they possibly can in the direction of, of Palestinian Arab demands. And that's what leads to the infamous white paper of 1939.
1: Which is the McDonald White Paper, and that's where I wanted to go and ask about it, um, because the, the McDonald White Paper essentially, um, at least, seemed to stop Jewish immigration towards Palestine and effectively acknowledge the grievances of the Arabs. However, and I found this very, very interesting, in the epilogue of the book, you say effectively the Arabs did not lose the war in 1948 and 49, but the the war was lost. 10 years earlier, so with the end of the Arab Revolt, which looks like some sort of a, a paradox because the, the McDonald papers suggest that well, the Arabs won uh, at the end of the Arab Revolt, but it doesn't look like this was the case. So I was wondering if you can speak about this, and perhaps you can also include in this discussion the, large, uh, the larger
2: impact of World War II as we discuss this this St James uh, conference leads leads essentially to, to the white paper which severely curtails Jewish immigration uh, and then essentially says after a number of years um, Palestine will get its independence and it, and and if it's clear to everyone that that means independence with an Arab majority and it's then it's de facto an Arab state this is essentially a a, a walk back from the Balfour Declaration. that's how almost everyone sees it. certainly the Jews see it that way that the, the commitments made uh, under the Balfour Declaration are no longer valid. and um, and there's a discussion in in Arab circles and in the mufti circles about what about what to do and um, you know there are there are, um, celebrations on the streets of Nablus and and Nazareth where the Arabs Basically, say we've we we've won. They said this revolt that we've that we've given so much blood and treasure to has has has, has you know, it's yielded fruit. We've 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 we finally um, we finally gotten what we wanted. Uh, uh, and so there are quite a number of of prominent Arabs who are in support of uh, of ex- of accepting of embracing this this white paper. Of course, it doesn't meet all of their demands. Of course, they would prefer that a, a third of the country not be uh, comprised of Jews. And yet uh, it's very many influential Arabs think that it's the best they can hope for. Uh, the Mufti, as you can probably predict, uh, rejects it. And he's really the only uh, he, <laughs> against almost all advice. He, he, he rejects this white paper as not going uh, far enough um, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's a, it's a win and it's a victory in the sense that they were offered, uh, all of these concessions and the British still intended to, you know, it's not like because the Mufti rejected it that they said, okay, the, 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 offers off the table. The idea the British offer was the British idea was essentially, we're going to present these concessions in order to appease Arab and Muslim opinion in Palestine and outside of it in the face of the coming war. Uh, And so, of course, this is seen as a huge betrayal uh, by the Jews. And yet Ben-Gurion comes up with his famous formula that once World War II breaks out, uh, that we shall uh, fight the war as if there's no white paper, fight the white paper as if there's no war and fight the war as if there's no white paper. There's different versions of it. Some people say we shall fight uh, Hitler as if there's no white paper. We shall fight the white paper as if there's no Hitler. Uh, and so the kind of final reckoning between, between the Jews and the British is put off uh, for those years of, of World War II. And then it reemerges after World War II. And essentially the British face a Jewish revolt uh, after World War II, uh, which um, in many ways was, uh, was, was more, more violent and deadly than the, than the Arab revolt uh, of, the, of the previous decade. But of course, the key year here is is 1948, uh, and um, yeah, you mentioned uh, the the part of my book, the epilogue, in which I discussed that uh, essentially the the Palestinian Arabs had lost the, the the Arabs of this country had lost the country uh, a decade beforehand, and and I have to give credit where due. This is not this is something that uh, the, the his, the Palestinian American Rashid Khalidi has also written. He refers to uh, the, the the Nakba of 1947, 48, 49 as um, uh, a postlude, a tragic epilogue of the events of 1936 to 39, because the Palestinian social, not just the social fabric, but the, the it's uh, the Palestinians' um, military capabilities. They were they're just. Um, relations between families, uh, the entire social fabric was torn. You had thousands of, of men killed. You had thousands, of, uh, thousands more in exile. You had um, thousands of weapons uh, confiscated. You had um, uh, just an enormous amount of bad blood within, within the community. Uh, between, between rival families and such. So it, it, on every uh, economically completely gutted, I mean, the, 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 the Arab uh, boycott of, of Jewish businesses and of the British economy was a huge blow economically. And, and conversely and interestingly, it was a huge boon to the Jews. I mean, Ben-Gurion was a, was a, a master of turning adversity into opportunity. And when, when the Arabs, uh, when the Palestinians launched their, their strike, he saw it as a golden opportunity to, to create what, he'd always want, what he had always wanted, which was a self-sufficient Jewish uh, economy and a self-sufficient Jewish polity. And really, by 1939, the, the Jews have created um, the territorial, economic, demographic, military uh, springboard for establishing their state and for conquering uh, the, much of Palestine 10 years, uh, 10 years on. So, and as much as there was, there was a tremendous price in, in Jewish blood, you know, 500 Jews are killed in these years and many more wounded. Um, they, they come out stronger in every way. And, and, and the psychological shift I think is also extremely important among the Jews. There's a book about this period, an academic book called The Abandonment of Illusions uh, and, and the old kind of Zionist um, aspiration or hope or wish that you know if we just show the Arabs how many blessings we're bringing and we bring them, quote unquote, into the modern world and we, sh- and we, we show them what a modern tractor is and we clear the swamps, then they'll see that this, this is a fantastic thing that we're coming and we'll all live in peace. Well, that illusion was, uh, was, was dashed in these years. Um, and I think there was a, a realization among not just the Jabotinskyites, but among the mainstream Zionist uh, leadership and the rank-and-file that the, the, the fate of this country would be determined and, and maintained by force. I think there was a, a realization and acceptance of that reality uh, in this period.
1: In the end of your book... You basically trace uh, an overview of events that occurred uh, since the Arab revolt and obviously after nineteen forty eight
2: so I was wondering, are these the legacy of a great arab revolt so i i there's there's always a risk of uh, overstating the case right and every 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 author and every historian who writes a book it wants to wants to convince you that nothing else matters except their book uh, i would, <laughs> I wouldn't want to suggest that 1948 was not extremely important, or 1967, but uh, the fact is there there are a lot of books on those on those particular years, uh, and I and I and I but I I, I would contend that you know the revolts, uh, ripples, or repercussions, or echoes, or cho- choose your metaphor, uh, have have kind of spread throughout the conflict ever since. Sometimes visibly, sometimes invisibly. I mean, I can give you just a recent example. Uh, in 2021, when we had the, the last uh, Gaza war here, you had uh, y- y- you had these these Twitter wars, for example, where uh, <laughs> Batsale Smotrich, who of course is in the news now, he's uh, the incoming finance minister, he's he's very far right, and he's going to have uh, very significant powers in the defense ministry. Batsale Smotrich tweeted something like, uh, "Let me see if I can pull it up here." Uh, the riots of the Arab enemy take us back many years to the Great Arab Revolt, and he he goes on to talk about a worth. He, he basically compares the the government of the Israeli government. This is the Naftali, uh, sorry, not Naftali Bennett. This was uh, this was pre-Bennett, wasn't it? He compares the government uh, of that uh, of that period to the British government of before, kind of a, a you know a traitorous, weak government that's kind of anti-Zionist, and then he says neutered by. Now we have a worthless and weak Jewish government that's neutered by dangerous post-national and postmodern concepts, okay? And then at the same time, on the other side, uh, Palestinians called a day-long strike. And all over the news and all over Twitter, there were comparisons to the great, the, the, the strike of 1936, right? There were, you, you had Palestinian leaders tweeting about how, you know, we're returning the glory from, from, from 1936. Um, so that's just one recent example, but I think uh, I think in many ways, both both uh, both seen and unseen, uh, the uh, you know the there's uh, the, the the revolt rages on. So you know there's a there's a a, a cliche that the um, I think it's a Faulkner quote that the past isn't the past isn't uh, how does it go the past isn't dead. It's not even past. Uh, I think Prince Harry used that in his in his memoirs just now, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, and I think that's certainly more that's certainly true in this part of the world, and I think that uh, that that in, in many ways for both Israelis and Palestinians that, that this, this revolt rages on.
1: This was Oren Kessler, author of Palestine, 1936: The Great Revolt and the Roots of the Middle East Conflict, published by Rowan and Littlefield in 2023. Oren, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at
0: Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.